0: There's a gaping hole in the American education system, although even calling it a system seems overly generous. When you go to high school, they teach you chemistry, they teach you geometry, they teach you physics. You have English classes, history classes, foreign language classes. You can graduate from college speaking three languages with a deep understanding of quantum physics or ancient philosophy. You can get a Ph.D. in early modern literature. Did you know John Milton, Mr. Paradise, Lost, also wrote political pamphlets? They teach that in school if you get enough education. But you know the one thing they almost never teach in middle school or high school, not say nothing of college, financial literacy. And I'm not talking about economics here. You could be an econ major and still learn nothing about personal financial planning or retirement readiness, let alone how to invest your money wisely. Money is just not talked about. It's almost like it's the third rail of American education. You're a thousand times more likely to read Das Kapital. I mean, okay, admittedly an important book. Ideology aside, Marx was actually a pretty good economist. Uh, uh, but he's not going to show you how to balance a checkbook, let alone manage a portfolio of stocks. Financial, li- li- financial literacy, the third rail. And that's why I'm on a constant mission to teach you how to manage your money so that you can be a better investor. I want you to make more money. Think of this show as a kind of continuing education for all things financial. And when it comes to financial planning, nothing is more important than retirement. Sooner or later, you're going to stop working. Hopefully sooner rather than later, unless you really love your job. I'm betting most of you, even if you don't own individual stocks, still have some money in a 401k plan. Decades ago, corporate pensions started going the way of the dodo, and now the 401k is the main way that Americans save for retirement. They're offered by your employer, and they're uh, they're among the greatest tax-deferred investment vehicles out there, along with the IRA. I'm not talking about that Irish Republican army. I mean the individual retirement account. For those of you who are about to pass out or change the channel because the whole idea of saving for retirement puts you to sleep, hear me out for a minute. You need to know this stuff. Believe me, your future self will thank you for getting your retirement funds in order. And while you may think you know everything you need to avoid the, to, everything you need uh, about these tax favored accounts, you think you know it all? The truth is, there's a lot to that the so-called experts don't tell you. For example, the conventional wisdom says that you absolutely must invest in your 401k. You'd have to do a full month to contribute. Many experts will even advise you to max out your 401k contributions every year if you can afford to. Right now, the maximum contribution is 19,000 or 25,000 if you're over 50, but it tends to rise gradually over time, usually a little faster than inflation. In 2012, it was 17,000. In 2004, it was 13,000. Either way, that's a serious chunk of change. Even these contributions, uh, with these contributions coming from your pre-tax income, However, I think that's the wrong approach. I'm not going to sing the praises of the noble 401k plan right now or tell you it's the key to your financial salvation because the truth is the 401k plans, they can be real mixed bag. Sure, they have a couple of really great features, but they also have a lot of bad ones. And those problematic features will eat away at your returns year after year, sometimes through through fees that are almost totally hidden from you. The ones I've been involved, i got to admit, hidden, hidden. So let me lay out the good, the bad, and the ugly of 401k plans. That, then I'll tell you whether it makes sense for you to contribute more money to your four, own 401k, or maybe there's a better way for you to put that cash to work. First, the good. The best thing about the 401k is that it's a tax-deferred investment vehicle. In plain English, that means you pay no taxes on what you put in, and then you never pay a penny of capital gains taxes on the profits you make within your 401k, which allows your gains to compound year after year after year, decade after decade, totally tax-free, until you decide to start making withdrawals. Regular viewers know that I'm a huge believer in the power of con- Compounding. Let me give you an example. Suppose you're 30 years old and you start investing $5,000 a year in your 401k. If you choose your investments wisely, you should be able to generate, I know this could be a stretch, but you should be able to generate on average a return of 7% per year. So at that pace, over the course of the next 30 years, you'll be contributing $150,000 tax-free to your 401k because that money is able to compound year after year without any capital gains taxes. By the time you're 60, that $5,000 per year of pre-tax income that you've been investing, it will be worth Over $511,000. If you had to pay taxes on dividends and capital gains every year, believe me, that number would be a lot lower. Perhaps as much as $110,000 lower. You only ever pay taxes on your 401k money once when you decide to withdraw it. At that point, your withdrawals are taxed as ordinary income. And since you'll likely be retired by then, most of of you will end up paying a lower rate than if you've been taxed on that money when you first earned it. And that's one major reason to like 401k plans. The other Well, many, but not all, employers will match or partially match your 401k contributions. For every dollar you invest in your 401k plan, your employer might throw in, say, 50 cents uh, up to a certain point. That's free money, people. It's also untaxed. So if your employer even partially matches your contributions, you should absolutely take advantage of by putting money in your 401k. There's no question. But if 401k doesn't have any kind of employer match, then I think it's a much less compelling option because, as I said before, 401k plans can have a lot of problems without the match. You're much better off saving for retirement via an individual retirement account or IRA, which has the same exact tax favored status as 401k. You can only contribute $6,000 a year to your IRA or uh, or $7,000 if you're over 50. But when you change jobs, you can roll over all the money in your 401k into an IRA. And that's exactly what you should do every time you switch employers or find yourself out of work. What makes an IRA the better option? First, there are the fees. When you invest in a mutual fund uh, within a 401k, you have to pay the mutual fund's fees. But your 401k administrator, the company your employer hires to run those plans, will also charge you his own fees. Well, on average, they take more than 2%. I find that extortionate and just plain wrong. Most actively managed mutual funds charge less than 2%, and they're you know actively managing your money. Have you ever looked at your statement and wondered why the heck your 401k holdings aren't increasing in value like they thought you thought they should be? I've got to tell you, it's the fees. They're the probable reason. Here's the bottom line on retirement investing. If the company you work for offers an employer match for your 401k contributions, then you want to put money into your 401k until that match is maxed out. No reason to pass up free money. And after that, put any additional retirement savings in an IRA. But if there's no employer match uh, or if there's an employer match, but your 401k doesn't give you any options that are worth investing in, you would do much better to go straight to an IRA. And only start putting money in your four k once that IRA is maxed out. Can we go to Andrew in North Carolina, please? Andrew. Hey Jim, how the heck are you? I am doing well. How about you, Andrew? Doing good. Hey,
1: okay. hoping you could help me out really
0: quick. Sure. So I'm an early. I'm, a, I'm an early investor.
1: Uh, just a couple of years out of college. Okay, I great. Finally got some extra. Finally got some extra money in my pocket. I like to invest. I was wondering. Uh, do you think it's more advisable to look for a stock with a good chart or one with a good dividend history that I can reinvest my earnings?
0: OK, I like to have everybody be comfortable with what they do. To me, dividend reinvestment compounding is terrific. Charting is a little too tech uh, too. let's say, uh, I, I like the technicians, but it's too short term in nature. And you got your whole life ahead of you. Let's buy some uh, stocks with good dividend that have great uh, great growth. I think that's perfect for you. How about Mark in Florida? Mark. Booyah, Jim. Yes. I've made a lot of money in the market as of late, and when the big boys say, take
1: some off the top, what do you use as a guide for that percent that you take off?
0: Okay, for uh, my travel trust, I find that it's not such a bad idea, uh, up 25% to pull off a little. Up 50% to pull off a little, and then when you're up 100%, you take out the house's money, and then you let the rest ride. It's been my rule, and it's worked for me for more than 40 years. Bobby in New York. Bobby! Yes, how are you, Jim? I'm doing I well, Bobby. How you... about you? All right, good. Uh, I'm 67 years old. Okay. I have some money put aside I'm retired. I'm collecting Social Security and my pension. It's not that much. Okay. But whatever little money I have, I want to invest it, but I don't want to have it jeopardized. I can't afford to lose it. Right. Well, I've got to tell you what you want to be able to do then is you want to be in stocks that have good yields uh, I have a book called Stay Mad for Life where I just, where I tell you very simply how to walk through and see if the yield is safe. But that's what I would do. I mean, the typical stocks that I've been recommending over the last 40 years would be something like the telephone companies, but the major telephone companies and the utilities, the major utilities. I think those are made for your investing. All right. When it comes to retirement, if your company matches your contributions to a 401k, Max out. But if you don't get an employer match or you don't have investable options, straight to an IRA, please, much lower fees. My money tonight, you just got your diploma, so now what? Don't miss my investing advice for recent college grads. Then, too busy investing in individual stocks, I'll help you put your money behind the next best thing. Plus, there are many roads to a healthy retirement. Let's chart your course. So stick with Kramer.
1: Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter.
0: Everyone in this country lost their minds and decided to turn America into Kramerica with me as your king or your generalissimo or your grand poobah. You better believe I'd make some serious changes. So what would the 18th premiere of Jim Cramer look like? For those of you who didn't get that reference, I think Google could be your friend because this is a show about money. Then let's stick to the more mainstream elements of the Kramer regime. For starters, it drives me nuts that we don't really teach our young people about how to handle their money. Would it be so crazy if you had to take a class in personal finance before you could graduate from high school? I think it should be mandatory. Like those awkward health classes where they show you how to put a Trojan on a a banana? And and that was only vaguely uh, referenced to the Iliad. Now, sadly, I am nobody's dictator, even though I was a guest judge on The Apprentice at one point. I have no influence over education policy in this country, but I do control what we talk about on this show. So can I just take a moment to speak some words that we all believe, but very rarely get to say in polite conversation? Look, money is important. It's really important. And caring about the state of your finances does not make you some kind of superficial bourgeois monster. Say you've got a lousy credit score and you want to get married. Congratulations, you've just inflicted your horrible credit on your new spouse. Now, neither you nor your partner will be able to qualify for a loan to buy a car or a home or perhaps even just get a darn credit card. These things matter in life. Look, I know they say money can't buy happiness, but I've always found that a bit of cliché commercial wisdom to be dubious at best since being broke, as I know, from living in my car is a major buzzkill. Yeah, firsthand, I spent time, six months in my 78 Ford Fairmont when I lived in California. I sure wish I had had an expert to guide me through all this money stuff way back when, although I still put money away for retirement when I lived in my car. I took it out of my homeowner's budget. So let me answer one of the most important questions out there. What the heck should, should young people do with their money? First, foremost, and always, you need to Invest. That's the only way you're going to be able to achieve financial freedom. And by freedom, I mean living a life where you're not totally dependent on your paycheck for everything. I'm always thrilled when I see members of the younger demographic who are taking an active hand in managing their own money. Too many people start saving and investing too late, making their lives a lot more difficult than they need to be. But I also know many young people feel like they have all the time in the world. And many more start investing before they're truly ready. Uh, in, in fact, better things for them to do with their money. They think they have, but they don't. They need to invest. Invest young. Invest young. Invest young. That's why I have three lessons and a caveat for all those who, who are recently out of college. Let's start with the caveat. Before you can start investing, you need to pay off your credit card now, this is something I've mentioned before, but it's especially true for younger people, particularly because banks have gotten really aggressive about offering credit to college students. No matter how much money you rack up in the stock market, if you're carrying a balance in your credit cards, then it's going to eat into your long-term retur- into your returns. And long-term, the interest on in those credit cards will probably be greater than the profits you can possibly make in the stock market, at least on a percentage basis. So just pay your darn credit card balance in full every month. Automate it with your credit card company if you're worried about being tempted not to. I can't emphasize this enough. When I got out of law school, I had max debt on half a dozen credit cards. I took a job at Goldman Sachs, the firm everyone wanted to work at, and I made good money right out of the chute, but not not enough to pay all that interest and be able to afford the biggest boom box in the world, which was my first and really at that point only priority. So I paid down the debt pronto, and I got my dream box three months later. And now you're talking... The point is, credit card debt is onerous, even if you're hitting it out of the park with your paycheck. They are the house. They win. You lose. Now, let's get to my three lessons for uh, young investors. First, this advice is really for everyone out there, regardless of age of edu- or education level, but especially applies to fresh college grads. You need to save money. I recognize that not everyone has an inherent predisposition to save. We can't all be natural cheapsticks. I also acknowledge that telling you to save over and over again won't necessarily do any good. However, the stock market is a great way to trick yourself into saving a part of your paycheck that you might otherwise spend. Investing in stocks can be a lot of fun, whereas leaving money in a savings account or a CD well, it feels totally joyless for most people, not to mention the fact that the returns are so small they're basically meaningless. Second lesson for young investors... This is a much more targeted piece of advice for you. While you're still young, you can afford to take a lot more risks than, say, an old fogey like myself. In other words, when you're in your 20s, you can get away with riskier, some would say reckless, but riskier strategies, like owning more speculative single-digit stocks, where the potential upside is huge, but so is the potential downside, or playing with options, and just generally being a lot more aggressive with your money. Why is that? It's not because young people are naturally better speculators. It simply goes, when you make money, And you make a money mistake in your 20s. Well, that mistake, you got your whole rest of your life to to fix it. You can afford to buy more high-risk stocks that end up losing you money when you're young because you have 40-odd years to earn the money back. I am jealous of you. Older investors... Caution! You need to be more cautious. The closer you get to retirement, the more conservative your investing strategy has to be. More bonds, more high-yielding stocks, fewer speculative stocks trading in single digits. But if you're in your 20s, you should invest like a young person, not an old person. That means forget about bonds, please. I'm begging you. There's absolutely no reason for someone in their 20s to have bond exposure when that money could be invested in stocks, where it will most likely end up consistently making you a higher return year after year after year. And yes, stocks is an index for is fine. If you're watching, does he like index funds? Yes. So, young people, I want you to take this advice to heart, especially as I suspect that the recent college grads most likely to invest in the market are also the ones who are the most responsible, the most prudent about their money. And prudence is great when you're putting together a budget to live within your means or deciding how much of your paycheck to save every month. But for young investors, being too prudent is actually reckless. 20-somethings live a little, at least in your stock portfolios. Take some risks. Forget about bonds. And for the next decade, play around with some more speculative names. Maybe some tiny biotech companies with a lot of potential. Either they blow up on you and, 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 and go all the way to zero, frankly. You do have the whole rest of your life to earn that money back. Oh, and that endless canard that you can't save until you pay off your student loans? Please, have you looked at how low those interest rates are on those student loans versus credit card debt? I chose to invest my money when I got out of law school. And after paying my credit card debt, I still invested, knowing that I could beat that student loan bogey. Sure, pay some of it off, but you don't need to hurry. I'd rather have you invest now and pay later. Final lesson for young investors, it's never too early to start investing for retirement. Use your 401k if your employer will match part of your contributions, like I told you earlier, and especially put some money into a Roth IRA, which is ideal for young investors, and I'll explain why later. Here's the bottom line. For young people just out of college, investing is a great way to trick yourself into saving money you might otherwise spend. Beyond that, remember, when you're young, you can afford to make a lot of mistakes and take a lot more risk. And it's never too soon to start contributing to your 401k or IRA, especially if that IRA is a Roth. Stick with Craigie. world where you have more choices about where to invest your money than ever before. It's pretty confusing out there. There's a virtual infinity of ETFs, mutual funds, you name it. But more choice isn't always better. Sometimes having more options makes it impossible to decide which ones are right and which ones are dead wrong. And you've never had more options when it comes to picking exchange-traded funds and mutual funds than you do right now. They're everywhere. At this point, there are so many different kinds of ETFs that it can make your head spin. By the way, I hate the way many of the sector-based ETFs, the ones that let you buy and sell an entire group like the banks or home builders, have been been warping the way the stock market trades itself. That's something you can, uh, if you don't understand, you can read about and get rich carefully. Many are just flavor-of-the-month ETFs designed to cash in on something that's in the headlines. Fool you, frankly. You know, all those silly fang ETS, the fintech jobbies. the ones that amalgamate out cannabis. They're getting rich quick instruments, as far as I'm concerned, but only for the people who created them. Not for you. But the important thing is this. You have all sorts of ETS and mutual funds out there, and they can all advertise. They can. They're great at that. Companies that run these funds want your money. And one of your biggest mistakes you can make as an individual investor is to give it to them with a few significant exceptions. Unfortunately, this is also one of the most common money mistakes out there. In fact, most people in this country simply equate investing with putting their money in mutual funds. Some 80 million people, or basically half the households in America, have exposure to mutual funds. Uh, Many of you don't have a choice. A lot of 401k plans don't let you pick individual stocks. I I can't pick individual stocks, but it wouldn't matter because the 401k plan I was involved wouldn't let you. Uh, They just give you a menu of mutual funds to choose from, which is one major reason I think that all is equal an individual retirement account or IRA is the better way to invest for you for retirement. Again, I'm restricted. I can't own stock. Mad money is, pre- is predicated on my experience and what I've seen all my investing life. If you have the time and the inclination, both are important. I believe that you can beat the S&P 500. I know because I've seen it done so many times in the past four decades by so many people, people I know. What exactly is so bad about mutual funds? Why, why am I rallying against them right now? Simple, if you're investing in mutual funds, you're, you're most likely, well, to put it delicately, let's say, but you're getting hosed. Why? See, my main beef here is with actively managed mutual funds, mutual funds where there are people deciding which securities to buy or sell. Unlike hedge funds, mutual fund managers don't get paid for delivering performance. They collect fees uh, from their investors, people like you. And the amount of money they make depends entirely on the size of their assets under management, which means the biggest incentive is not necessarily to do well, something that good performance can really help with. No, what they're really being paid to do is fundraise. And that's part of the reason why, in study after study, year after year, it's been shown that the vast majority of actively managed mutual funds underperform their benchmarks. It's a big reason why. In other words, if you invest in an actively managed fund for large cap U.S. stocks, then its performance will maybe most likely fall short of the S&P 500. To make matters worse, despite consistently underperforming the market, actively managed mutual funds still have some of the highest fees in the business. It's counterintuitive. That's some industry. That's when business is much uh, more sink or swim. At my fund, we compounded 24% annually after all fees versus 8% for the S&P over the same period. Yet, I fretted every second about fees and even chose not to take them during a the year where I was up only a couple of percent versus a stronger performance for the averages. I was embarrassed. Did a mutual fund manager ever do that for you? You can read all about it in Confessions of a Street Addict. Might tell too much autobiography. Now, here's the part where I say not all actively mutual funds, uh, managed mutual funds are bad. Some of them have fabulous records, okay? Some have fabulous managers who consistently deliver terrific results. But even here, there's a major problem. When a mutual fund delivers amazing results for a longer period of time, if the manager is they a decent person, they'll stop accepting new investments. So a lot of these high-quality funds are out there, but they don't take new money because when your fund gets too big, it becomes incredibly difficult to beat the market. And if the manager's a not-so-great person, well, they'll keep taking in more and more money until their performance status starts to suffer. When the late, great John Bogle, the father of the index fund, asked me how I could beat the averages so consistently when I set my hedge fund, I said that I limited my investors and made it like a club where you had to be nominated to get in. That meant I was never overwhelmed with new money, something that often leads to bad investment decisions. Bogle said if everyone did that, they could have much better records, too. And maybe that was the real secret sauce of my hedge fund's multi-year outperformance. I know I know, Jack Bogle thought it was. That's why, as a general rule, if you're going to invest in mutual funds, you don't want to be in an actively managed one. The fees are too high, and the evidence that the bulk of them underperform is too staggering. Plus, remember, if you're investing in a normal account, uh, they'll inflict capital gains taxes on you, whereas you control what, uh, when to pay. Uh, at least for the taxes, if you own your own stocks. Individual stocks, you don't have to sell them, they don't have to pay. If you don't have time to run your own portfolio, then I really want you to own a cheap, low-cost index fund that mirrors the S&P 500. This may sound like a real simple solution, but don't overthink it. The whole point of putting your money in a mutual fund is to save you the time and effort required to manage your own portfolio of stocks. That's why I think it's insane when people start owning multiple mutual funds. By its very nature, funds should be diversified. Now, I know there are a lot of sector-based mutual funds and ETS out there, but there's really no reason for home like you to have any exposure to those. I know it's counter, No one says this. I'm saying it. If you're going to take the time to try to play individual sectors, that time should be better spent really just picking individual stocks. As for ETFs, in most cases, these vehicles are for trading, not investing. Many ETFs rebalance every day, and that can take a real toll on any long-term performance. Uh, of course, there are exceptions here, like the GLD, the ETF I like, as a simple way to play gold. And I like the ETFs that mimic the S&P 500. But in general, if you're not a pro and you're not managing a portfolio of individual stocks, you should be very careful about fooling around with most of this stuff, especially those double and triple ones, leverage ones. Those are a nightmare. Don't do them. Here's the bottom line. At the end of the day, I think a cheap S&P 500 index fund is really the least bad way to passively manage your money. Better than the vast bulk of actually managed mutual funds. But an index fund owns everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And if you do have the time to do your own homework, and again, there's that inclination factor, I believe you can beat the performance of an index by picking stocks yourself. If you don't have the time, though, don't overthink it. Just one cheap S&P 500 index fund is the best way to go. Let's go to Chris in Florida, please. Chris. Hey, Jim.
1: Quick question. I'm 35 and I have my 401k diversified across stock funds. Mm -hmm. What suggestions do you have to help better grow my retirement?
0: I want to keep things simple. I don't have a lot of funds. Uh, Make sure that you have the right amount of cash for decline Uh, and make sure you're getting a lot of income uh, because you're going to need that because you're uh, it's going to compound over time. Uh, but remember, you're, you're diversified if you own a diversified fund. Don't feel like you need to be diversified by owning three diversified funds or five diversified funds. I've seen that far too often. Right, sorry, not so mutual love here for mutual funds. Picking stocks is still the best way to manage your money. But if you don't have time or the inclination, I urge you to go with the s and p 100 fund over most actively managed funds. Remember, I did not diss mutual funds if they have low fees, if they're S&P 500 minutes Much more about money ahead, including how to find the best path to healthy, healthy retirement depending on your income. Then don't forget the kids protecting your children from student loan debt will put them in a better position to build the future. I'll help you plan for that hefty tuition bill. Plus, I'm responding to your tweets without the four 140 character restriction. Well, they let them go longer. So stick with Kramer. I'm hey, Kramer. Kramer. Welcome, Welcome to Mad, to Mad money. money. Other people want to make friends. Make I'm, fr- just I'm just trying to make you some money. 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 Welcome to Mad Money 101 from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Mad Money is not a show about picking stocks for you. It's a show about empowering you to think for yourself. You are the reason why we do this. We want to level the playing field for you. No matter how good you are at stock picking, if you don't know all the Byzantine rules about what kinds of accounts to keep your money in or how to manage your personal finances or how to get the most bang for your buck when it comes to major lifetime expenses, then you could be missing out on some terrific gains or maybe losing a fortune to hidden fees. I admit this kind of stuff isn't as fun as picking stocks. I know I love picking stocks much more. But over the course of your lifetime, it really could help you build up more wealth than a couple of great stock picks. And the simple truth is that I don't want you leaving that money on the table just because nobody could be bothered to explain, say, the finer points of retirement investing. So with that in mind, let me explain whether it makes sense for you to use a regular 401k or IRA or or for you to go with a Roth which is a term I'm sure you've heard countless times. Now, I know I've talked endlessly about the benefits of using an individual retirement account, or IRA for short, and a 401k plan to invest for retirement. I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but this is a subject I get a ton of questions about. So should I put my money in a Roth account or a regular one? Let's start with the Roth IRA, which anyone can contribute to as long as they make less than $137,000 a year. I think that aside from the earned income tax credit, the Roth IRA may be the single greatest thing our government has done For lower-income families since the end of the war on poverty, which at best ended kind of in a draw, with poverty possibly winning on points. If I were king of the forest, I'd make the limits for the IRA investing the same as the ones for the 401k. It's ridiculous that they aren't, but the industry doesn't seem to care because they make a lot more money off of 401k plans. There's no other reason I could find for why you can contribute roughly three times as much money to a 401k as an IRA. Honestly, I've searched it. It doesn't make sense. It's got to be the industry. No one talks about it. I told you all about how a regular IRA lets you take pre-tax income, invest it, and then your gains can compound year after year, decade after decade, totally tax free, until you decide to start withdrawing money once you've retired. But a Roth IRA works differently. With the Roth, you make contributions using after-tax income. So, in other words, unlike a regular IRA, putting money into a Roth won't decrease your tax bill, at least not up front. On the other hand, once your money's in a Roth IRA, you'll never pay taxes on it again. As long as your cash remains in the account, you don't pay capital gains, you don't pay dividends tax, and when you withdraw it, which you can do without penalty after the age of 59 and and a half, you don't pay any income tax on your withdrawals. Basically, with a Roth, you pay taxes now so that you don't have to pay any income taxes 30 or 40 years from now when you're retired. There's one more positive point about a Roth. After five years, you can withdraw the money you've invested, not your gains, just the amount you've contributed, and you won't get hit with a 10% penalty, which is what happens when you try to withdraw money from a regular IRA before you hit that magic age of 59 and a half. That's very different from a regular IRA where you don't pay any taxes on your contributions now and your gains don't get taxed within the account. But once you start withdrawing money, every penny you take out is taxed as ordinary income, which means that when you're trying to decide between a Roth IRA or a 401k, in a regular IRA or 401k, you need to determine whether it makes more sense to pay income tax now with a Roth or to wait and pay income tax once you're retired with a regular account. In short, you're trying to figure out whether you'll be in a higher tax bracket if you're retired or a lower one. Obviously, this is a complicated question has a lot of specifics with your situation. That's why I always tell people, look, on these questions, I think you've got to speak to advisors. You've got to know yourself. Okay, It's really important. Uh, it's more, more than just simply how old you are. But my quick rule of thumb, for anyone whose marginal tax rate is 25% or less, which is most of America, I think to go with the Roth. Better to take the hit up front than allow your Roth IRA to compound tax-free for the rest of your life. Remember, for those of you who don't have the time to pick your own diversified portfolio, say have 5 to 10 stocks, may have money, uh, of course, of course, beyond the index fund, the smartest thing to do is just park your retirement money in a low-cost index fund that mirrors the S&P 500 as you get older, you can add some bonds. But really, until you actually retire, I still think stocks should make up the majority of your retirement investments. Remember, don't forget people live longer. I know i said this before, but I'll keep repeating it until they take me off the air because it's so and so necessary, yet so contrary to conventional wisdom. It's not what people say. I want you in stocks longer and longer. Alright, right, how about this Roth 401k? This works just like a Roth IRA, meaning you make contributions with the after-tax income, then you never pay taxes on that money again, except because it's a 401k plan. It has a much higher contribution limit than an IRA. Like I mentioned at the top of the show, for 2019, you can put $19,000 into a 401k, and that's just as true for a Roth 401k. There's one, uh, there's one other big difference though. Unlike a Roth IRA, a Roth 401k doesn't have any kind of means testing. No matter how much money you earn, you can take advantage of a Roth 401k as long as your employer decides to give you the option. Of course, all these decisions depend on what you think the future will look like. If you believe that taxes are ultimately headed much higher over the course of your lifetime, as many people do, then a Roth 401k where you pay your taxes now and pay nothing in the future is the way to go, even if you're making a lot of money in the present. At the end of the day, though, this is both beyond our control and beyond our ability to predict, including, by the way, your professionals. The bottom line, the lower your present income, then the lower your tax rate. A Roth 401k or Roth IRA lets you pay those low rates now and never worry about taxes again for your retirement money. So the less money you make, the more likely that a Roth is for you. Yes, it's that simple. And when you're saving for retirement, don't worry about what could go catastrophically wrong 30 or 40 years in the future. Just worry about making the best choices for yourself right now. Stick with me. we've heard a lot about the crushing burden of student loans. Right now, tens of millions of Americans owe $1.5 trillion in student debt, an incredibly high figure, up 50% from just a few years ago. I don't know if it's a good idea for the government to just cancel all that debt like some Democrats have proposed, but I get where they're coming from. It's not just that it really stinks to graduate from college or grad school and then immediately realize that it might take decades to pay back these loans. In study after study, kids who graduate with no debt end up being worth a lot more money than their classmates who have outstanding student loan balances. Although, as I said before, student debt is a heck of a lot cheaper than credit card debt. So don't sweat the program too much. The problem here is simply that there's so darn much of it and you can't get rid of it even in bankruptcy. Now, I'm a big believer in social mobility, which is why I'm constantly coming out here and teaching you how to use the stock market. The greatest engine of wealth ever created to help you make some serious money. So for any of you who are parents or are thinking of becoming parents, let me just tell you right now that there are very few things you can do for your kid's future that are better than paying for as much of their college education as you can afford. We know that college graduates have a much easier time getting good jobs. We also know that they ultimately make more money than non-graduates. It's just a fact of life. Of course, if I were kind of making a kind of, uh, Abe Maslow style hierarchy of financial needs, and that's M-A-S-L-O-W for those who want to Google it, I'd tell you that it's more important for you to save and invest for retirement which is why I talked about that earlier in the show. For those of you, uh, of you who are parents, maybe you're wondering how you could possibly prioritize your own retirement over making sure your kids have the best possible future. Simple, because believe me, if you reach retirement age and you don't have enough money to pay for your needs, who do you think is going to support you? Your kids. You don't want to be a burden on them. So take care of yourselves first. All the books say it. I've studied it. I've thought about it. I agree. However, after you've saved enough for retirement in a given year, then it's time to start thinking about college, even if your kid is only a toddler. And the best way to save for college, hands down, is through what's known as a 529 plan. Now, these plans vary by state, but the general rules apply all across the country. There are two kinds of 529 plans. First, some states let you use a 529 as a way to hedge against tuition uh, inflation. You can buy college tuition credits at today's prices and then use them in the future. Now, that's that's not what I'm talking about, especially not in a world where major national politicians are talking about making tuition free at public universities. Now, I want you to use a 529 savings plan. Again, these are run by the states, but generally speaking, a 529 doesn't let you manage your own portfolio. You have to pick between a mix of different mutual funds, just like many 401k plans. Now, that's not my favorite way to do things. I prefer you to have control of your assets. But 529s have so much going for them, I'm willing to swallow this one flaw. Remember, when you can only choose between funds, go for a low-cost fund that mirrors the market, like an S&P 500 index fund. So what are the rules for a 529 plan? Let's say you just had your first child. Congratulations. If you can afford it, you should start a 529 with your kid as the beneficiary right then and there. Well, maybe wait a couple of days after you just have a baby. Although, as anyone who's read Confessions of a Street Addict knows, I traded big blocks of Alcoa throughout the birthing. Admittedly, not my finest hour, somewhat ill-advised, although the trades will be worked out financially, if not familiarly. Here's how a 529 works. Contributions are not tax deductible, so you're paying for this with after-tax income. But, and here's the good part, once your money is in the 529 plan, you don't pay any taxes on your gains so they can compound tax-free year after year. Really, it's a lot like a Roth IRA, except for college rather than retirement. Because of federal gift tax laws, you can contribute $15,000 a year if you're single, $30,000 if you're married, and you file your taxes jointly. That's a heck of a lot of money. Oh, and by the way, your children's grandparents can contribute to the same 529 plan, too. And if you don't have the money, a grandparent can also start a 529 with your kid as a beneficiary, although for financial aid reasons, it's better to have a parent to it. Now, let's say for some reason you, are, you, you or your parents are sitting on a really huge sum of money. One of the cool things about a 529 plan is that you can front-load five years' worth of contributions without incurring the federal gift tax, as long as you don't write any checks to the plan's beneficiary over the next five years. In other words, a single parent or grandparent could potentially invest 75000 into a 529 right from the start. Or if you're married and filing jointly, you can contribute $150,000. For the next five years after that, you won't be able to contribute anything without getting hit by that gift tax, which is something you don't want. But honestly, once you've dropped that kind of money into a 529, you won't need to make too many, too many contrib- more contributions. The key here, though is that you want to get that money into your kids' 529 as early as possible. That's because the greatness of these plans is all about the power of compounding. Given that you don't pay taxes within the 529, if you can somehow contrive to contribute $75,000 right off the bat, and you invest that money in a low-cost index fund that I'm advising that mirrors the market, the rule of thumb is that over time, you'll make an average of roughly 7% per year. I know the stock market is a lot more volatile than that, uh, but just as a thought experiment, if stocks generally perform like they have historically, you could double your investment in about nine years. So if you start savings right now when your kid is born, by the time he or she is 18, the value of 529 plan will have doubled and doubled again. If you started with 75000 then after 18 years... Borrowing some kind of catastrophe, you could have as much as $300,000. That's enough for a fancy expensive private college education and a decent chunk of law school to boot, although if they don't hold back the price of tuition, it won't even cover the four years. But you've got to start somewhere. I know that most people can front load a 529 like this, especially not with all the expense that comes with raising a child. But it's worth keeping in mind that front loading as much as possible is indeed the best strategy. Oh, and for grandparents, this may sound kind of grim, But your 529 plan contributions won't count towards your estate tax. Hey, to borrow a line from the life of Brian, always look on the bright side of death. Last thing about saving for college and grad school, any money in a 529 plan that you don't use, you can transfer to another relative. We're talking siblings, parents, even first cousins. Oh, and if you save all this money and your ungrateful kid decides not to go to college, you can just withdraw the money from the 529 plan. But in that case, you'll have to pay taxes on any of your gains along with a 10% penalty. So here's the bottom line. No, paying for your kids' college education isn't as important, at least financially, as providing for yourself in retirement. But if you have children, then after you've made enough money, enough retirement contributions for the year, if you've made those contributions, putting money in a 529 college savings plan should be the next item on your agenda. It's the best way to protect your kids from the crushing burden of student loan debt. Stay with great. You know, I love hearing from you, Kramer. I guess so let's take some tweets. Uh, let's kick it off with at Scott T. Briscoe, at Jim Kramer. When talking diversification, you have said to pick like five stocks in different sectors. Do you recommend the same regarding mutual funds or suggest everyone uh, everything into one fund? This is for a growth-based retirement IRA. Absolutely everything into one fund. Never diversify among mutual funds. That is just the industry talking and the industry's got it wrong. Next up, we have a tweet from at Bren hashtag mad tweets, hashtag Kramer, at Jim Kramer. I put my first 10K, presumably 10,000, in an SP 500 fund, but I want to know do you continue to add money to it or do you just leave it as is? Thank you, hashtag booyah. Okay, you got the first 10,000 in. After that, now you start splitting. You have- Uh, I usually like a ratio, say, of a fifth, one fifth in individual stock, and then the rest, uh, you know, four fifths in the mutual fund. In other words, the individual stocks are mad money. I am a huge believer in index funds. We have another tweet from at Ryan Sweet 7 Lawson, at Jim Cramer, starting her young, hashtag 10 weeks old, hashtag mad money. Well, what can I say? That's exactly who should be getting the 529. Will you look at that? Look at that handsome chap. 529 plan, 529 plan, right now, right now. All right. Following tweet is from at JLoo96, uh, not JLo, Lou, at Jim Kramer, at Mad Money on CNBC. Kramer, better protect a Mad Money portfolio with GLD or bond based ETFs, hashtag Mad Money. GLD, of course. By the way, just so we know, I like gold bullion too, but you can't put it in your backyard. you got to put it in a safety deposit block. And uh, that's a must. Don't keep it at home. Now, uh, it seems like I got a little advice from from at Von Deco. He says, has someone told him that short sleeve shirts exist yet? Short sleeve shirts and pocket protectors. Not my style. Candidly, my mother never liked short sleeve shirts. She always thought I looked bad in them. OK, um, moving on. We have at WJ Forest 11 at Jim Kramer. Hello, Jim. Will we ever see stock splits again so uh, small money investors can afford the stocks that are now in triple digits? Hashtag CBC. What will take that to happen? Perhaps you could opine on this topic on hashtag man money. Okay, this is a really important point. The big companies have been schooled by both hedge funds and mutual funds that they don't want to pay so much per share. Okay, in other words, let's say they have. They want to buy 10,000 shares or something. If they split it, they'll be buying 20,000 shares, but their same commission per 20 as there is 10. So in other words, it's costing them more to buy 20,000 shares after commission than it does 10. So why split? Why not just keep it the same? That's what the institutions have taught these guys. I try to tell companies over and over again, that's wrong. You're not going to have the right base of shareholders. You should split the stock. Do you know that I've had no luck whatsoever? Why? Because these CEOs are only listening to the big institutions, not to you and not to, to Kramerica, not to people who watch Mad Money. I will continue to do so, but I am losing this fight. Next, we have Jerry on Twitter. He says, at Jim Kramer, hashtag mad tweets. Hey, Kramer, love what you do. Want to start reading your books. Is there an order in which I should read them? I have to tell you, I'd actually read them backwards. I would get, read Get Rich Carefully. Because that tells you about how to be involved uh, slowly. And then, by the way, I think stay mad for life. Okay, stick with Kramer. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. And I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer. See you next time.